Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to this very special bonus edition of The Hustle. I wanted to hurry and release this conversation I recently had with Rock Doc director John Scheinfeld. John's done a few things, and I'll tell you about them in a second, but he has recently completed a full-length documentary called Sergio Mendez in the Key of Joy. The reason That is coming out later this fall, probably on a streaming service. We talk about it in here. But a shorter, edited, truncated version of this, hour-long version of that documentary, is going to be airing in the month of June on PBS. Now, you're going to want to check your local listings. I've never said that. No one says that anymore. But check your local listings. That's why I wanted to hurry and get this out there, so that you could check your set your DVRs, look for the Sergio Mendez documentary on PBS, so you can record it. We get He gets into... I mean, first of all, we discuss why Sergio Mendez. I mean, first of all, he's fantastic. But obviously, what does his career mean to everybody? What does Brazilian music mean to everybody? Oh, my gosh, I love it. Um, Mashquenada right here. Huge hit for Sergio in Brazil 66. And, uh, and everything he's done ever since. And just that kind of pivoting. What Sergio has done throughout his career to always stay relevant. Always stay on top of things. If you're less familiar with Sergio and, honestly, frankly, Brazilian music in general, you owe it to yourself to get into it. It is so good. It's so chilled out and tranquil and just makes you happy and feel good. That's what Sergio is all about. Now, John is also the director of many other music-related documentaries. We talk about ones that relate to John Lennon, Harry Nilsson. You know that famous Harry Nilsson documentary that's so good? John made that. John Coltrane, Herb Alpert... A bunch of other people. That's who John Scheinfeld is. So we get into, of course, the Sergio doc, but then I wanted to ask him about all these other documentaries as well. Okay? So anyway, I think you are going to love this. If you love Rock Docs and Who Among Us Does Not, you're going to love this conversation and you're going to learn a thing or two about probably these other docs that you've seen. Okay? Here's John. Okay, so the show is airing in June, right, on PBS? Yeah, well, I, John, I don't know if they explained to you. It's kind of an interesting thing. I ha- I've never been involved with something like this before, but the, uh, the version, I made a, a feature-length documentary. runs right. 97 minutes. Okay. And there's a whole story why we didn't get into theaters last year, and it's COVID, and you've heard that before. Yes. But um, the distributor ended up making an arrangement with PBS where PBS created a special version for them that runs 60 minutes. Okay. Different titles, shorter length. That's what's on PBS. And mm-hmm. then later is the, the full feature. Excellent. Okay. And I was confused about that too. The, um, and the hour long version is the one that I've seen. That one is called Sergio Mendez, The Key of Joy. Correct? That's the full length feature. That's the full length feature. The PBS version is called uh, Sergio Mendez and Friends, A Celebration. Okay. Okay, good. And, do and you know, what, what, what people can do is if they give to their local PBS, we can talk about this, but if they give to their local PBS station, they'll get a DVD of the, as a gift. Of, oh, of the really? Feature. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Now, my understanding is that the, the shortened hour-long version, is that a part of like the American Masters series or is it going to be shown independently on its own on PBS? Well, it's a good question, John. I was asked a couple of years ago uh, to make a, a film about Sergio and I, I hesitated for about five seconds uh, before saying yes. Right. Uh, my mom used to play his music and would sing and dance around the house. So I always had this really uh, positive feeling about his music that it always sort of brought a smile to your face. How can you not, by the way? You know, How it's can really you listen to that and not have that exact reaction? 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and so imagine two years of that. It was great mm -hmm. fun. I made a, a full length feature doc that was going to be in theaters last year and COVID put an end to that. So where we've ended up here is there are two versions of what I made. One is mm -hmm. on PBS and it's called Sergio Mendez and Friends, a celebration. And it's a 60 minute sort of appetizer, if you will, mm -hmm. that's derived from my full length film, which is called Sergio Mendez and the Key of Joy. And um, uh, the PBS uh, uh, will be able to air this through the summer. Uh, and uh, if you watch it, if your fans watch it and uh, give some money to your favorite PBS station, you'll get a DVD of the full length feature doc. Excellent. Uh, and then the full length, uh, we're going to show up on uh, streaming services starting October 1st. Could oh, be fantastic. Netflix, could be Amazon, could be Apple. We're not quite sure at the moment, but we'll know within a, a month or so. Okay. Is the shortened version that's going to PBS, is it basically just the, the same movie with certain parts edited out? Or did you have to rethink some things and kind of change up the narrative for the shorter truncated version? Really good question. It's actually just uh, we lifted out certain okay. segments. Okay. Uh, so, for example, we have a wonderful uh, sequence with Harrison Ford. I won't tell you what's really? in it. It's <laughs> great. Uh, but we, there's no room for it in the PBS thing laying mm -hmm. out the narrative. So you have to watch the full length feature to, to see that. Okay. Also, when I was down in Brazil, we shot a wonderful sequence uh, with uh, the legendary soccer player Pele. And I got Pele to sing with Sergio, and that's worth the price of admission. And uh, that also is uh, only in the longer version. Oh, but the, the PBS uh, uh, program uh, is, is a great appetizer look at, at his career. Mm -hmm. And uh, Quincy Jones is in it, Herb Alpert is, is in it, John Legend is in it, mm -hmm. Will I Am is in it. And they all give a really uh, a unique uh, perspective on Sergio the man and, and Sergio the artist. It was so wonderful. And, um, you know, I was watching it thinking, first of all, I mean, Sergio is fantastic, but there are, I'm, I'm watching it thinking there are two pillars or two things that I think uh, helped Sergio become the legend that he is and sustain that sort of place in history all this time. Number one is, it is probably so lucky and or serendipitous or fortunate or whatever that he was signed by Herb at A&M at that time. Because Herb, I mean, you know this, you made the Herb Albert, Albert movie too, which I haven't seen yet. I wanna see that one and I'm gonna ask you about it in a minute. Shame on you, you need to see it. I know, where, is it where? Where can I see it? I want to. We did a, a Facebook Live premiere last fall, yeah, okay. uh, October. And uh, it's been up on Amazon Prime ever since for rent. Really? So it's okay. available there. and. We may be doing a, a Blu-ray Blu release with some bonus material, but that hasn't been decided yet. Okay. So I'm thinking, obviously, Herb and, you know, the Tijuana Brass at that moment is having, it's just huge. And who better to uh, launch a career like Sergio's than the man who is, you know, receiving, who is at the receiving end of so much success from that type of music at that moment anyway? So it's so it's so fortunate that they came together. It makes perfect sense, but they, that Sergio was able to sort of be launched in that way by a man who respected what he was doing and knew how to get him out to the right audience. And then secondly, I was thinking, it's also what I think has kept some of that longevity going is the appreciation and the acceptance of more modern hip hop artists 
like Will I Am, like Common. I think I think Sergio did something with Wyclef a while back. But having these kinds of modern, you know, tastemakers see value in what Sergio is doing and repackage that and bring it to their listeners has helped, I think, keep the Sergio flame alive all this time. Don't you? Yeah. So let's take that point first, uh, John. Okay. I think uh, among the most rare talents that a, a musician can have is the ability to stay relevant and mm -hmm. to have a career that is more than just a one hit wonder. Yes. And so for an artist like Sergio, who's, who's had hit records over a 60 year career, mm -hmm. that's pretty amazing. But I think part of what it is, is the openness to reinventing himself and his sound consistently not just doing the same thing over and over again or playing the oldies circuit. Um, mm -hmm. He, in, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, he found a way to reinvent his sound and, and make it equally current. And then uh, uh, the word you used is his word, which is a great one, serendipity. Mm -hmm. He will make these associations with a Will I Am or a John Legend uh, or someone like that who finds a way to uh, help Sergio reinvent that sound and bring it, yes, as you say, to a, a more contemporary audience. And that's what I think, yes, uh, I, I do agree that that's what has helped him uh, have this kind of longevity. Uh, the first uh, question uh, is, is actually a great story because Herb Alpert had um, done a few records for RCA and some small Los Angeles labels, none of which made any kind of a mark. Mm -hmm. And then he hits upon his unique sound of the Tijuana Brass. Mm -hmm. And because he is uh, so smart and so talented, he decided he didn't want to be on some other label because RCA and all those other labels, they were really bad experiences for him. So he decided, I'm going to start my own. So he partners up with a guy named Jerry Moss. And you have A&M Records, A for Albert, M for Moss. And the, the first artist for the first couple of years is Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, who, as you said, explodes on the scene. Huge. was no hotter artist. In 1966, uh, John, for example, uh, Herb sold more records than the Beatles did. Not many people can say that. Wow. Um, and so A&M is now doing really, really well. And Herb decides he wants to sign some other artists. And he and Jerry went to an audition at the end of 1965 in December here in LA uh, to hear this new artist. Uh, they, they had some, some salesperson at A&M had gotten wind of them, but didn't know too much. But there, uh, there was this uh, audition here in LA for Sergio Mendez in Brazil, 66. Mm -hmm. And uh, Herb and Jerry were just knocked out by this new sound. And that's what it was. It was a new sound, Bossa Nova, had captured uh, the world's attention as early as 1962. Lots of artists incorporated bossa nova into their style. Even the Beatles uh, did a version of Till There Was You that was a little bossa nova-y really? on, on uh, the album Meet the Beatles. But what Sergio did is he blended it with jazz yes. and with pop slash rock music. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when uh, Herb and Jerry are going into this uh, audition, they're hearing, hearing a sound that's just, I haven't heard this before. It has elements of different things, but it's a unique thing unto itself. And then there's the two girl singers led by Lonnie Hall, who's just one of the best singers Ever. anyway. Yeah. And, and they decide they're going to sign him. So this was great for two reasons. A, um, 
uh, A&M was an artist first company that, that really stressed, how do we take what the artist wants to do and enable them to do it in a way that really reaches the public? Uh, anyway, so Herb, so they're with the right label for a new yes. artist. And then Herb decides he's so crazy about this sound, he's going to produce the first album, uh, which ends up being called Herb Albert Presents Sergio Mendez in Brazil 66. And the first record they release off of it is, is not something you would think would be the first big hit. It's a song in Portuguese. When was the last time anybody heard a song in Portuguese? It's called Mashkinada. And it ends up being this worldwide top 10 hit. Mm -hmm. So Herb had the ability to see in Sergio um, the potential. He had the ability to take what Sergio wanted to do with this sound and bring it to a broad audience and through the record company, find the right radio play and sales and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And in the film, Sergio talks about, Herb calls him one day and says, we're ahead <laughs> on everywhere. And, and you know, for, for a young guy from a small town in Brazil, this was very exciting. But they were both amazed in some small way that this song in Portuguese would, would do so well. But Sergio's feeling was, it didn't really matter what those lyrics are. It didn't matter what the song's about. The beat was so infectious, you can't help but tap your toes and dance and smile. And I think that's why so many people um, responded so positively to that record. I agree. And uh, I had similar thoughts. You know, it. It could have been that, you know, a Blue Note or a Decca or something like that might have gobbled up somebody like Sergio and then put them very respectfully in the jazz genre. Uh, you know, Antonio Carlos Jobim and João Gilberto, these guys, that's sort of the fate of those kinds of guys. Hugely respected, but not as not played as often on the pop stations. But Sergio gets picked up by the right guy, by Herb, as you mentioned, who knows what to do with an artist like that. And that changes everything. And then suddenly these songs, like you said, it, you know, whether it's covering the Beatles as they so often did in those early days or whatever. it's the right formula to get you seen by a much wider audience. And then that music becomes pop music. It's not just relegated to jazz stations. And that changes everything, I think. Yeah. And it was a great formula. It really, really it did well for them. And over the course of the, the, the seven years that Brazil 66 was around, as you say, they did the Beatles, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but they covered Little Anthony and the Imperials. They right. they covered uh, Buffalo Springfield. They covered Joni yes, Mitchell. They covered a lot of interesting people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it was with the through that prism of yes. that unique sound. And, yeah. and I think it sort of defies genres. You know, you wouldn't call yeah. it rock, jazz, or bossa nova, but it has a little bit of all of that. I agree. And to the point where I wonder sometimes if because of I think because of its time and place, it, you know, you can't listen to that music and not think of flower power and bell bottoms and beautiful ladies like Lonnie and their hair and stuff like that. And, or, you know, newly uh, dating game theme songs or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I wonder sometimes, and because the music is so inherently sort of laid back and chill and that it almost sometimes I'm afraid gets relegated to incidental or background music and it gets lost what's actually happening there. I mean, what's better than music that makes you feel so chilled out and happy and vibrant? Don't push that to the background. Let that be in the foreground. And that's kind of, I think, what as great as Sergio is, I worry about Bossa Nova being relegated to sort of go-go black background music that, you know, people play in dinner parties or whatever yeah you know and you're right i mean some of the songs did get that kind of treatment but again when he brought in the elements of the other sounds it it comes to the forefront and so you hear his music in the soundtracks of films Mm -hmm. and uh, other artists cover some of the songs and so it does get a little bit of a different thing but going back to one of your previous questions then when he hooks up with a Carlinhos Brown, a mm-hmm. Brazilian uh, uh, musician with Brasileiro, which he won a Grammy for, that has all these fantastic percussion rhythms and stuff. It just assaults your senses and you, mm-hmm. it can't be in the background. Mm-hmm. And then he meets uh, and works with Will I Am and John Legend and uh, a lot of other uh, really popular mm-hmm. uh, contemporary artists. And they bring this contemporary sound, yes. which again, uh, defies you to put it in the background. That's so, right. I think, yes, there are some elements of uh, some songs in his catalog that do fit that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're sort of relegated uh, uh, in the background. But mm-hmm. um, I think, again, it's his particular genius to, to be able to find those particular songs that, that uh, will come into the forefront. I mean, it, we, we should probably talk about Never Gonna Let You Go, which okay. was one of the biggest was- hits of 1983. <laughs> I was as wrong as I could be To let you get away from me I'll regret that move For as long as I'm living But now that I've come to see the light All I want to do is make things right So just say the word And tell me that I'm forgiven You and me
Looking back now, it seems so clear. I had it all when you were here. That was going to be my next thing. It's so funny. I had forgotten that that song was his. And I think that's, it's, you know, that's probably because he's not a singer. He's not the one singing it. And so, and even, no offense, the people who did sing it are not like household names, you know, and the, the song is lay, is uh, listed as a Sergio Mendes hit. I had forgotten all about that. And when that started playing and I'm the dots are being connected in my brain, um, it's so fantastic. And you're right to have this giant hit out of nowhere in the 80s with his name attached to it. How did that even happen? Well, it was so not a Sergio Mendes sounding record. <laughs> There were no Latin rhythms. There was nothing that would suggest this was Sergio. In fact, uh, I remember hearing that song as a kid that summer. You couldn't go anywhere and not hear that record. And, uh, but I didn't remember it, it was his. My wife, same thing. It was like, that was a Sergio Mendez record? What had happened was is that he had gone a few years without recording. And we talked before about his ability to reinvent himself. And so he was coming back with a new record and a cassette shows up at his house. Uh, from the songwriters and he loved the melody and so he gave it a kind of 80s synth kind of sound mm -hmm. and instead of doing the two girl singers which he'd done his whole career uh, in America uh, he decided he was going to have um, a male singer who's Joe Pizzullo who's wonderful so not famous not a household name but a wonderful Great voice. voice though and then a woman named Lisa Hill who sang the female uh, part and do it as a duet uh, and they recorded it. it ended up being the last song he recorded and in fact they were like at the pressing plant making the albums and this thing comes in the finished track and they redo it and then put it on the album and it becomes you know a top top uh, 10 hit totally unexpected and it all came from a cassette showing up in his mailbox it you know when you listen to that song it reminds me of something that james ingram and patty austin might have done at the time Mm -hmm. that uh, Quincy, who's in the, you know, would have produced, who's in your doc. I want to ask you about that as well. But um, yeah, to have, it, it's so odd that, do you know the story? I mean, was that cassette sent to all the Sergios and Quincy's and everyone else of the world at that time and just to see who bit and Sergio bit? Or was did someone think this would be perfect for Sergio? Uh, that's an unknown, John. Don't okay. really know. Okay. Uh, we, I this is just so out of character, like you were saying. It could have, who knows, you know? Well, okay. uh, I didn't talk to the songwriters, so I don't know. Okay. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because I don't know, I could be wrong, but I don't know that there are any other cover versions of that song. It was such a distinctive sound. Good I'm not point. sure anybody else attempted it. You but you're right. right. Uh, Patty Austin, Luther, uh, all those kinds of people. It yeah. sounded like what was going on at the time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Maybe even a year year or two ahead of that, you know? Yes, you're right. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, fascinating. And and again, that's what we were talking about before, the example of, of, mm. of changing his sound to to fit the ear and make himself contemporary. Yeah. Do you, okay. Oh, so, so let's talk about getting people like Quincy Jones to speak on camera about Sergio. Obviously those two are peas of the same pod. What was it like? How did you go about getting someone like Quincy? He was probably happy to talk about Sergio, but tell me about how that even happened. Sure. Whenever I'm starting out to do a, a, a new documentary, I cast them much like you would cast mm. a scripted feature. I want unique personalities who speak in a unique way, but also of course have the knowledge 
uh, to talk about the subject or a passion for the subject. So in, in uh, putting uh, together for the Sergio Mendez doc, it was like, all right, so who would be interesting here? Well, how can you talk about contemporary music that crosses boundaries of genres and, and not talk to Quincy Jones? And on top of it, Quincy, like Sergio, had been an artist uh, on the AM label with his own records, not producing, but his own records. And so he could speak to what it was like to be on that label and what it does for an artist. And then, of course, he and Sergio have worked together. We have a wonderful uh, piece of video where they're both at the Montreux Jazz Festival together uh, some years ago, and they're hugging and kissing each other. It was just wonderful. Uh, so, yes, we reached out to. Uh, to Quincy and uh, he of course yes tell me what day and we'll do it and we went over to the house right. and got him and he also which I didn't know at the time he had been at this famous Bossa Nova concert at Carnegie Hall in 1962 just in the audience and he was knocked out by that sound and he saw Sergio for the first time although they didn't meet until some years later but he tells the story in the film wow uh, but then of course we had to have Herb and Jerry for for mm -hmm. AM. But then I wanted to make sure that we had some of these contemporary artists. So we went after uh, Will I Am and John Legend and Carlos Saldana, who's the director of this animated yeah, Rio. Rio. Sergio mm -hmm. got an Oscar nomination for. So yes. it's just a lot of different uh, voices that could speak to different aspects of, of Sergio's uh, uh, career. Yeah. Perhaps the most unusual and uh, you won't see them in the uh, PBS version, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. either give money to your station and get the DVD of, of the full feature or watch the full feature when mm -hmm. it's out in October. But we had two sequences that are just terrific. One was uh, with, with Harrison Ford, one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And, and what I really want is people like you and your, your audience to say, what the heck is, is Harrison Ford doing in a Sergio Mendez documentary? That's exactly what I'm asking myself. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a great connection and a great story. And, and okay. Harrison is so drolly humorous. Yeah. Yeah. I won't tell you what it is. I won't speak. Okay. It, but it, was oh, I can't wait. it was just no room in the PBS mm -hmm. version with the storyline we were telling. And we also had the legendary soccer superstar Pele. And uh, we went down to Brazil and, and shot a lot of Sergio mm -hmm. down there, uh, including a, a, a day with Pele. And I got Pele to sing with Sergio. And so how often does that happen? So killer. And it's a so wonderful killer. sequence also. And, uh, and it was just, again, I think I keep coming back to the same word, which is why the film is called Sergio Mendes and the Key of Joy. It was just a joy. It was so joyous to be around all of these people who just love Sergio. So, in some ways, John, it really was one of the easier films uh, that I've had to book talent for because um, they love Sergio so much and we're just thrilled to like, tell me where, tell me when, happy yeah. to do it. I believe it. And um, I, so were you doing the Sergio and the Herb docs sim simultaneously? You had mentioned that people, someone came to you and said, do you want to do a documentary on Sergio Mendez? Were you already a lifelong fan? Are you an expert in this area already? Do they come to you because you're already, you've made other fantastic rock docs? How does the germ of this even happen? Well, um, a lot to unpack in, in, in all of that. So I'll actually answer right. several of your questions. I'd been approached by uh, Concord, uh, mm. which is Sergio's label. Mm. Uh, I had worked with the people there on my uh, John Coltrane 
uh, documentary yeah. Chasing Train. And we had a, just a great experience. Uh, Love those guys. And anyway, they came to me and they said, how would you like to make a documentary about Sergio Mendez? Then I hesitated five seconds, maybe. <laughs> I said, yes, I'll do that. Uh, as I said, my mom used to play his records when I was growing up. She would dance and sing around the house. So I always had a real positive feeling about this music. Uh, but I didn't know a lot about his story. And the more that I I researched, the more I thought this is a story that needs to be told, not because it's full of great drama and tragedy and, you know, self-destructive behavior. I've done that with Harry Nilsson and, and, uh, or, or a provocative character like John Lennon. Harry, mm -hmm. uh, Sergio is a guy that did things the right way. Mm -hmm. He did it because he is talented, uh, because he is ambitious, uh, because he is persistent, and as we were just talking about, because he has the ability to reinvent himself, make himself mm -hmm. contemporary. So I thought that's a great story, really worthy of, of celebration. So I went out to Sergio's house, and we spent about three and a half hours, and we had a real love fest. We just really hit it off with each other, and at the end, it's like, yeah, let's go do this. So we spent about two years uh, making the film. We shot here in America and also down in Brazil, and maybe three quarters of the way, two thirds, three quarters of the way through making Sergio. I'm home working one day and the phone rings mm -hmm. and it's Herb Albert. Says, oh, hi Herb, how are you? He says, I want ah, you to ah. come out to the house. He's like, okay. Now, and then I call Sergio and he says, no, I know that. He said, I, I, I was being your agent. I was telling him how great you were to work with. And Herb was starting to think maybe it's time to have his story told. And I had interviewed Herb and Lonnie for Sergio's doc, and so they had a good experience. So went out to the house and very similar experience. We had a big love fest. And it was like, yeah, we should go do this. Took us a, a couple of months to raise the money. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it wasn't simultaneous, John, but it was mm -hmm. sort of staggered. Uh, so okay. uh, at the tail end of Sergio, I started Herb. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't so much that I'm an expert in this particular field, but I think what what I do have a reputation for doing is presenting really good portraits of artists, oh, rock sure. artists uh, mostly. And again, I wouldn't call Herb or, or Sergio rock per se, pop, but, but they're they musicians. The and yeah. and so uh, the, the feeling that they'd seen my Coltrane mm -hmm. film and my Harry Nilsson film, my John Lennon film, they said, this is a guy that knows how to tell a story and, and understands musicians. Yeah. And yeah. so I think I was able to, to do that, you know, and I got a new film that I'm working on now um, Ooh, that is, is more jazz rock fusion. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't so much the genre of music that interests me as much as it is the story. What's the story? Yeah. Is it a good, compelling story that needs to be told? I can totally relate. Are you, uh, is it a secret what this new film of yours, is it a No, person? actually we, we announced it last November. It mixes music, politics, social commentary, and a bit of a mystery. Mm. And it all involves the band Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Really? Ooh, nice. And it's not a history of the band, but something happened to them in 1970. They were the hottest band going that year. They had four uh, top 10 singles in a row. The album mm -hmm. sold millions and millions of copies. Mm -hmm. They beat out the Beatles' Abbey Road for uh, album of the year. And so they're riding high and then something mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna talk about what that something mm -hmm. is. And it affected their career trajectory 
in such a, a significant way that we don't remember them today in the same way we remember Chicago, which another horn based band that a rock band that came in their shadow. But uh, it's really fascinating. And, you know, we hear a lot over these last few years about culture wars and, yeah. and, uh, and, and that as a, a landscape, a social, political, and cultural landscape. And there was a very similar situation in 1970 and hmm. Blood, Sweat and Tears got stuck in the middle. They were hammered by both right-wing conservatives and left-wing liberals. That's a unique thing. Mm. And it really impacted. And, and so we're gonna reveal how and why that happened. Ooh. Ooh, I can't wait, I can't wait. And you know, I'm curious, you talking about the, the deft hand and craft you brought to your rock docs in the past. I feel like, I mean, and not to single one out above any of the others because they're all fantastic, but I feel like what you did with the Harry Nilsson documentary has sort of relaunched him in some ways back into the discussion of like, is he a rock and roll hall of famer? How important were his albums? His voice is better than 99% of the singing voices out there. Are you aware of this? You know, I, I feel like that's what any good rock doc should do. There's a really fantastic one out recently about Susie Quattro that does this too. That It takes this subject that you think you know, but you've been taking for granted for far too long and forces you to reassess how important they are in the culture that, and you aren't realizing it. And I feel like your doc for Harry absolutely did that and kind of re-put him back on the map where he belonged. And it would be so interesting to see if this is, if that same outcome comes for Sergio and Blood, Sweat and Tears, these fantastic artists that are sort of, as great as they are, they're not, you know, top of the heap all the time where they belong. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great point, really true. And thank you for, uh, for the kind words about uh, <laughs> the Harry film. It's why, you know, it's called uh, Who is Harry Nilsson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? It's a, a play, of course, on, on one of his big hits. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was taking into consideration that, well, I'll tell you a story. I went Please. and I, I did a lecture at uh, Harvard on documentary filmmaking mm -hmm. back uh, before I did the Harry film. And I took questions after the lecture and, and one of the students uh, said, so, what are you working on next? And I said, well, I'm gonna do this film about the singer songwriter, Harry Nilsson. And I don't know about you, John, but I, I don't think I've been in a room with 150 people, not one of whom knew what the heck I was talking about. What? Never heard the name. <laughs> and I said, but I'll bet you know his music. And I said, you know, he did the theme song for this great uh, film, uh, Midnight Cowboys called Everybody's Talking. And some heads started to, to oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, and then he had this big hit with this power ballad, Without You, and I started to sing it, which I can't do really. And oh yeah. And then I said, and then he did this goofy little song called Put the Lime in the Coconut. Oh, he did that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, and he wrote this song, One is the Loneliest Number, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, see, you know the music, but you don't know the man, and that's what this film's gonna do. And as you rightly said, that really is the power of film, yeah. that you can bring back to the forefront yeah. somebody maybe a little forgotten or maybe not mm -hmm. as well known mm -hmm. and really position them in a way that people will pay attention. And I think we had that experience with who is Harry Nelson, mm -hmm. even to the point where 
he became the central song for eight episodes of a Netflix series that uh, has been nominated for all kinds of Emmys, The Queen's Gambit. They right. love the song Gotta Get Up. And so it fe- figures very prominently uh, in, in all the episodes. So uh, we can only hope that that'll be the case. Yes. But it is kind of interesting about Blood, Sweat and Tears, for example, is that in 69, they had four uh, uh, top, they were actually all reached number two. They didn't reach number one, but four of them reached number two. Uh, and When I Die, Spinning Wheel, More and More, and uh, You Made Me So Very Happy. Everybody knows those songs. They are continued to be played on, on a radio and, and uh, uh, Spotify and all those sorts of uh, streaming platforms. So you know the songs, but you may not know much about the, the group that made them and, and as we will say, what happened to them. True. You know, uh, I was thinking too about the dichotomy between covering a subject like Harry and covering someone like Sergio. Harry, Harry, as you mentioned, is such a complicated figure. Um, So many ups and downs and self-imposed, you know, drama and unfortunate stuff in his life that, you know, so he's a, he's a provocative character. Sergio almost wins you over by positivity it's almost the opposite you know he's he seems as light and enjoyable and loving as the music he creates they both seem to kind of give you this same sense of calm and goodness was he I, i you would never tell me otherwise but am i sort of on on track here with what sergio is like as a guy absolutely right and i wouldn't say that if it weren't the truth he, uh, one of the things uh, of which I'm most proud with this documentary is we present the real Sergio Mendez. Mm-hmm. This is who he is. He is a relentless optimist. This glass will always be more than half full kind of guy. And I think that is reflected certainly in his music and his personality and in his friendships. And I got to say, one of the cool things about my job is that here it is. Here's a guy that my mom used to play. And, and, and that I was aware of since uh, I was a kid, and I can now call him my friend. And we spent so much time together and really created a great relationship. So my wife and, uh, and I and Sergio and his uh, wonderful wife, Grisinha, we're now a foursome and we hang out and go out to eat and just have a really good time together. And, and so I can attest from that, that he is exactly what you see yeah. on screen. I'm fascinated with people who I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of us music nerd types would love the opportunity to make documentaries about our favorite artists and you actually do it. How did you get into this? How did you become the guy who makes these great docs? <laughs> well, thanks for the, uh, thanks for the kind well, words. They are. I mean, I've seen them all, you know. Uh, oh, that's great. Well, thank you. Uh, luck, you know, uh, Sergio uses the word serendipity. So I have a bit of that. I actually come out of the scripted world. I used to write uh, episodes of TV shows and uh, I would write pilots for new drama shows. Not one of which got made, John, but they paid me a lot of money and I had great, uh, great fun doing them. And I think in a way it's what makes my documentaries different than uh, uh, from most other documentary filmmakers in that I come out of a scripted narrative world and I apply that approach to the structure of my storytelling, whereas a lot of documentary filmmakers come out of journalism. So it's a different background. Mm-hmm. But one in the 90s, I, late 90s, I got to know um, uh, Groucho Marx's grandson. 
And uh, he said, you know, you should make a documentary about the Marx Brothers. And it was like, well, what do I know about making documentaries? I, I, uh -huh. like, I, I, I type scripts, you know? Right. And he said, oh, you're a storyteller. Uh, you'll know what to do. So anyway, he gave me the rights to it and uh, uh, partnered up with a friend of mine, David Leaf. And uh, David and I uh, sold this thing and we made the unknown Marx Brothers. And it wasn't a, a traditional look at the Marx Brothers, just their greatest hits. It was really a film that tracked their lives and careers, but packed with audiovisual material you'd never seen or heard before. It's really unusual things. And we got a lot of attention for it. And then uh, David had a relationship with the Bee Gees and they uh, were ready to do a definitive doc. This was in 2000. And uh, so we did that, it was for A&E biography, but it was a, 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 a two, we did a two and a half hour doc in a three, three hour slot. And- uh, What was the name was of really, that documentary? I'm sorry? What was the name of the Bee Gees documentary? Oh, it was called, This Is Where I Came In. That's right. So yeah. I had been trying to find that documentary for a long time and I've seen pieces of it on YouTube because of licensing, I assume a lot of it's, it's never all there at once. And it's interesting because the new documentary on the Bee Gees that's been getting a lot of acclaim on HBO as if one had never existed before. And, in my, and I didn't even know you made that one. But in my mind during the last few months as this new one's getting all this attention, I'm like, didn't anyone ever see that other one that I can't fi even find the whole thing of on YouTube? Because it's great. Don't get me started, John. <laughs> <laughs> I know this this new Bee Gees documentary got got some real acclaim, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not the one to talk to about it because forty percent of that film is made up of interviews that David and I did for our documentary. I noticed while I was watching it. Yes, I they did so. not. They did not thank us. They did not credit us. They didn't have to pay us because the Bee Gees, part of our deal with the Bee Gees is that the Bee Gees own those docu those interviews. So they could have done anything uh, with it that they want. I just would have hoped that the filmmakers would have had the class to thank us because it was our research and particularly David's uh, rapport with the brothers uh, of, uh, about whom he'd written a book uh, some years earlier that got them to open up. But the other thing, because we're talking about documentaries today, Part of what's really important to me is to enable the audience to feel they really have gotten to know these people and yeah. understand them. Mm -hmm. And I felt in the new Bee Gees documentary, they don't do that. Yes. The interviews are mostly used for exposition. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. How we use the brothers is their personalities jump out at you and they're telling stories from their life that illustrate character and the journey, not just exposition. And so if you ask me, I think ours is much better. I think they there do. actually is something is up on YouTube that's close to the full version. Okay. I, I'm really proud of it. But anyway, so we did the Bee Gees and coming off of that, then other things started to, to come my way. And David and I did the, the, uh, the U.S. versus John Lennon together, and then, then we sort of wanted to do That's other things, and so I sort of went off on my own. But it's like any profession, really, that if, if you have enough things that get a high enough profile, mm -hmm. people will know you, and mm -hmm. they will know your work. And so when I come in to pitch a project I want to do, uh, they know me, and they say, oh, you, you do good work, but let's think about that. Or it may cause someone to come to me 
and say, uh, how do you feel about this? Yeah. And that's kind of how it gets started. And now I'm at a point where I've got enough uh, films in my catalog where I'm pretty sure somebody has seen it, or at least I can point to it and say, you know, I've done this, Yeah. you know? And so I've got uh, the Blood, Sweat and Tears going now. I'm negotiating on two new things, uh, which are not music related, okay. but out of the blue, a group that you will know, and I can't tell you who they are, but because uh, it's not a deal, but yet, but uh, they had seen the Harry Nelson, they had seen the Coltrane, they had seen the Herb Alpert, and they said, how would you like to do something on us? And oh. it, it's, it's a very important uh, group. And so okay. we'll see if the deal comes together. Okay. But this is kind of how it happens. You know, stuff is sort of out there and, and, and sometimes it'll come your way. Let me ask one kind of nerdy filmmaking question. I mean, you mentioned having written scripts for drama. I assume while you, you may have been writing scripts, you weren't or didn't think of yourself as necessarily a filmmaker or had you been at that point? Because no, I, was, I was just a schmuck writer. Okay. <laughs> well, I, because, I mean, there are lots of bands I would love to make a, a documentary about, but I'm me and I'm just a guy in Denver with a regular job, you know? How do you go from being, is it the idea? How do you go from being the guy who writes scripts for shows that don't get made to being this excellent rock doc maker? You know, um, happens? I, I'm probably not the right one to answer that question. Uh, my wife could probably give you no, a better maybe. answer. But uh, she hasn't known me. You know, we, we've been married 10, uh, 10 years. But mm -hmm. anyway, you know what I think it is, John, is that uh, uh, Groucho's grandson got it right. I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. yeah. From the time I was a, a really young kid, I watched uh, far too many movies and far too many TV shows. And I think on top of it, talk about nerd. I collected tapes of old radio dramas from mm -hmm. the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. And I would sit in my room at night, I'd turn the lights off and put on headphones and be transported back. But also really from an early age, getting exposed to storytelling, to actors performing, to somebody wrote those scripts. Mm -hmm. And so all of that, I think I absorbed a bit like a sponge. Yeah, And so whether it was just as a writer or as a filmmaker, it's those are the skills that one needs to do this. And, yeah. you know, I think uh, I look at um, uh, the, the chronology of, of docs that I've made, and uh, I think I'm a much better filmmaker now than I was uh, when I started. Mm -hmm. But each one, I think, has something that I'm real proud of. And I think you get better and you get better by doing it. But how you sell these things, really, it's, it's, not, it's not just, oh, let's do a doc about Harry Nielsen. It's mm -hmm. what's the particular approach? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think my strength is uh, coming from being a, a scriptwriter is mm -hmm. coming up with that vision, that unique approach to the subject matter that's going to get them excited. And so Herb Alpert, I think, is a really good example. My take on Herb was there isn't a Herb Alpert. Mm -hmm. There's five of them. Mm. And how do those five coexist within one guy? Mm. That's kind of a unique approach. It's mm -hmm. not just, oh, he was born here and he did this, right. and he did this, right. did this. He's an artist who had hit records. He's an entrepreneur that started his own record label, uh, co-founded and uh, mm -hmm. arguably the most successful independent record label in the history of the rock music business. Mm -hmm. He's a, a, an A&R guy who discovers Sergio Mendez and, mm -hmm. 
and signs uh, Sting and the Police and Peter Frampton and a number of other artists. Uh, he's a sculptor and a painter, and he's also a philanthropist who has given away $150 million in the last uh, 10, 12 years. So it's all about sort of what's the way into the story. And I think that does come from my scripted experience where you're given a basic storyline and then you try to figure out what's the most unique way to tell that story. And so I think I've been lucky enough to develop that and, and apply it to really any project I'm working on. Yeah, you have. Um, okay, two final questions. Number one, what was the most interesting thing you learned about John Coltrane when you made that documentary? Because I've seen that documentary too, and I love John Coltrane. And to me, there's something almost unpenetrable. I don't feel like I know him very well, you know? And um, I learned so much from your documentary, but I still feel, he still feels mysterious to me. Maybe it's because he died so young, so he's not here to tell his own story. Maybe it's because his music is jazz, so there's no vocals, so you're just hearing and interpreting what you know what you hear from coming out of his saxophone I don't know but I feel like he's this great unknowable and I'm curious what you learned about Coltrane in making that documentary that you didn't know before that really threw you for a loop sure I think it was two things John one is I didn't again I didn't know much about his story because you don't hear much about it and so I did research and talk to some of the people that knew him and and what came about was a a portrait of a, an artist who had many obstacles early in life mm. and, and was persistent enough and had the individual strength to overcome them, even if sometimes he put himself in a really, really precarious situation. But again, he did the right thing at the mm. right time. And, uh, and I think the interesting thing here was the, the precarious uh, situation was he was a drug addict yeah. and he could have so easily gone this way so or sad. gone that all way. Guys. could have yeah. gone down the road of Charlie Parker and died mm -hmm. or he could have gotten himself clean. And uh, what I find interesting, and this is again, what I learned is that it was when he gave up the drugs, the drugs didn't help his art. It was when he gave up the drugs that he became the John Coltrane superstar that we know. So that's one thing that I think I learned. Um, but also he, he found success on his own terms. Mm -hmm. He did not do what sold records. He wasn't commercial in that sense, although he did sell records. He followed his heart and his brain as to where he wanted to go with his music. And he went where he wanted to go, not where the commercial landscape would have done. Mm -hmm. There are people, you saw it in the film, Chasing Train, where mm -hmm. some people felt maybe he'd gone a little too far near the end. But again, he wasn't doing it to be popular. He was doing it because that's where his art was taking him. And I think that was a wonderful thing to learn about him. But you are, you are correct. He is somewhat unknowable. Yeah. Uh, only in the sense of there's something elusive about him. There's yes. something cosmic about him. Yeah that he's of the universe and citizen of the mm -hmm. world, but yet he's from Philadelphia, North Carolina, and then mm -hmm. Philadelphia. And we tried our best to communicate who he was. And I think you got a sense of some of it from his mm -hmm. friends that, that knew him from a very early age, but he wasn't there to speak for himself. And so no. I couldn't ask him, why did you do this? Or how did you do that? Mm -hmm. The closest I could come 
was he had done a lot of interviews for newspapers and magazines over the years. So I had his words. Mm-hmm. I couldn't ask those questions, but somebody did. Right. So I had those words and I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting? At least we can give Coltrane a presence in the film through mm-hmm. those words. Mm-hmm. But he didn't speak them. They were no. for newspapers and, and, and uh, magazines. Mm-hmm. So uh, being um, the ambitious and fearless uh, filmmaker that I am, I thought, well, let's go get a movie star. Mm-hmm. So long story short, we got Denzel Washington to speak the Perfect. words of Coltrane. And yeah. Denzel was so great and so cool about the whole thing. And he approached mm-hmm. it like he would approach a scripted film and how he was going to play Coltrane. He knew exactly how he was going to do it. Yeah. And I think it really elevates the film. And so you get sure a little does. sense more of Coltrane the man, uh, although it is an actor, fine actor speaking his words. I agree. And it made so much sense. First of all, I think you're right. You saying that I don't know of their piggybacking on what I said earlier, him dying early. I don't know that there are any clips on YouTube of him being interviewed. There's not a lot of footage you can go back to of him that's being a regular guy. That's what I thought. He did no TV interviews, no TV interviews, only did a handful of radio interviews and the sound of the few that exist was not good enough for us Mm. to use. So that was not an option. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, it's interesting too. I discovered John Coltrane when I saw Mo Better Blues in 1991 or whatever that was, starring Denzel Washington, and um, that's when I became a fan. And you talk about that exploration. Yes, his music got pretty out there near the end, but in exp- in doing that, in following his vision, we get a love supreme. So. You let the artist go where they want to go because something is going to come out of this that is worth worth the time and worth the value, don't you think? You bet. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, last question. What's your dream documentary? And it doesn't even have to be music. Politic- I, we didn't even get into all the poly- political stuff and electric youth. I wanted to ask you about that. I haven't seen that one, but I would love to. So yeah. uh, what would be your dream project to make a documentary of? Well, I'll tell you just uh, really quickly. I, I, someone is already making it, so it won't happen. But my uh, my dream documentary would be Paul McCartney. Oh, yes. I think he is pigeonholed by Beatles fans, uh, uh, as well as many others, as being sweet and you know. And there's so much more to him. So uh, as a as a person, uh, as a musician, as an artist. And I think there's a great story to be told there that has not been told. You know, it's like John was the serious one, Paul was the cute one, and there's so much more to both of those guys. So that that's one uh, that I that I would dearly love to to make. But I got to tell you, I've been really lucky, John. I, I I've been able to. If you look at the list of all the docs I've done, and there's like 40 some now over the last uh, 20 years, there's not one that I'm not proud to have done. Good, good for you. That's good. There's so much quality work in there. I mean, I'm touching on all the ones I've seen and there's a lot that I haven't seen, but thanks for all the good you put out there, John, because uh, I, I mean, I think I speak for a lot of people. What you do is so special. It means so much to people like me that love music and just want to understand the the artists better, you know, mm-hmm. and and we get to we get to experience that vicariously through you and the lens that you put up for us to to look through. I, thank you for all the good that you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, the kind words. I appreciate the really smart questions. And let's talk again for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Okay. Oh, I'd be happy to. All right. There you have it, John Scheinfeld. 
I love that conversation. I always think, you know, if I could have, at this stage in my life, I think if I could have almost any job in the world, it would be to make rock docs. That just sounds like so much fun. And who doesn't love a good rock doc? Every music lover, even the bad ones are still pretty good. And thankfully, John doesn't make bad ones. They are so fantastic. I guess in a way, to be honest, that's kind of what the podcast is supposed to be. I mean, I sort of started this thinking, well, this way everybody gets a behind the music uh, episode. So that's kind of what these are, these sort of oral documentaries. But I just, uh, I'm just baffled and amazed by people like John and the talent they have and the things they get to do and put out in this world because we love them so much. I want to close it out with Fool on the Hill. In fact, I had asked John at the end of our conversation what he thought we should close out with, and this was his pick. Sergio was on fire. It always has been, but especially there in the late 60s when he's doing that, turning these pop songs into, into bossa nova songs. So, so good. All right. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Please check out Sergio Mendez's documentary, In the Key of Joy. Set your DVRs on PBS. You're going to love this. And if you don't know Sergio's music, check that out too, by all means. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Shows his face.